and welcome to the latest edition of Nursing Matters with me, Rachel Hollis. I'm the chair of the RCN's Professional Nursing Committee and I'm a children's cancer nurse by background. This week I'm joined by my co-host, another member of the Professional Nursing Committee, Kendall Moran, who served in the Army for 10 years before retraining and joining the Queen Alexandra's Royal Army Nursing Corps. Hello, Kendall. Hi, thanks for having me. Kendall, I know you were in the Army for about 10 years in the sappers. You may have to tell us what the sappers are um, and why you changed to um, do nursing and how you found that transition. Yeah, so the sappers are the Royal Engineers. We like to give everything a nickname in the Army just to confuse people. And I had a really wonderful career. I commissioned in 2010 and I served at home and abroad in lots of different places. My most significant um, role was probably being a female mentor to females joining the Afghan National Army Officer Academy in Kabul. And that was pretty incredible. But I had always thought about nursing and I heard about this wonderful scheme that transferred soldiers from the rest of the army into the nursing corps. It was fully funded, and so it was a bit of a no-brainer. And so I jumped on the opportunity because I really wanted to have a, a more tangible impact on people every day. And I'd seen military healthcare professionals do incredible things on deployments, and I thought I wanted to be part of that. And so here I am. I've learned a lot of things. Uh, And um, if I were to compare the two stages of my military career, I'd say the biggest thing that I learned was that nurses work really hard. (laughs) Um, I mean, so soldiers work really hard. It's normally for defined periods of time. So for example, my nine month um, deployment to Afghanistan that I spoke about, I worked really hard on that. Um, But I knew I was going to get some respite at the end. But nurses just slog away continuously day in, day out and over a lifetime. And that's just incredible. I know we don't all love the rhetoric rhetoric of us going to war and battling COVID, but there really are a lot of parallels for me when I when I compare soldiering to nursing over COVID. But soldiers don't have to take the emotional and physical exhaustion and the threat of taking COVID into the home home every night. And so basically, I've learned that nurses are incredible. And I'm really pleased about my transition. Thanks, Kendall. Just a reminder that on this week's episode, we're actually in the run up to Nurses Day on the 12th of May next week. But this episode, we're focusing on gender in nursing. Why is our nursing profession still too often undervalued as doing unskilled women's work? Does this explain why nurses are still paid so poorly, despite the safety critical role they play in healthcare, as has been demonstrated throughout the pandemic? Should we recruit more men into the nursing profession? Or are campaigns that are focused on doing so addressing the wrong underlying problem? To discuss all that, we've got two special guests with us. First of all, welcome to Leanne Patrick. Leanne works in services for women suffering gender-based violence, sits on the board of Nursing Notes UK, and writes pretty regularly for Nursing Standard. She's one of the members of a new feminist network at the RCN and tweets at Feminist RCN. Hello, Leanne. Where are you joining us from today? Hello, I'm joining you from, uh, I was going to say sunny Scotland, but very changeable uh, weather here in Scotland today, as I think of the rest of the UK too. Uh, Thank you for having me on. It's really good to be here. And Leanne, tell us a, a bit about your role and your work. So uh, my role is working as a specialist nurse in domestic abuse and sexual violence, which is partly clinical work, partly consultative for other healthcare professionals. Um, and it's partly teaching, training and education. So there's quite a lot to the role. 
it's probably difficult to capture uh, succinctly, but I think that's what makes it such a good role and I think reflects how diverse nursing can be. That sounds like a, a really interesting role and obviously very pertinent to the things we're going to talk about today when yeah. we think about gender and, and nursing and um, a bit about the impact of COVID on women specifically. Mm-hmm. And welcome to our second guest, Rachel McIlroy. Um, Rachel is the RCM Senior Research Lead in Employment Relations and co-author of the RCM Report on Gender and Nursing, which I'm sure we will discuss at length today. Hello, Rachel. Um, how are you and what are you working on at the moment? Hi, good to see you all. Yeah, I'm working from my dining table come office in, in London the RCN's particularly busy with NHS pay, as you, you'd understand at the moment. We're looking forward to a vote in Scotland amongst the membership um, about their pay offer and then an eventual award at some point for the rest of the UK. So everything is trained on that at the moment. Interesting and important work. Thanks. Welcome. So let's start by asking, why is nursing seen as as women's work? Rachel, is this more than simply the fact there are more women in the profession? Is the work itself gendered? I mean, obviously, as a majority female profession, the issues that affect working women within nursing will are the same as working women everywhere, particularly around access to childcare, the price of childcare, which is absolutely phenomenal. Um, but as you say, it's about what we describe as this historical legacy of how nursing has, has come about and how nursing has kind of struggled to shake off that that legacy of being seen as women's work. So it's, it's both. It's about working women and the um, societal view of, of nursing as women's work and how it's imbued with questions about morality I think about nursing and caring as a as a moral good and not as an economic good I think not as um, productive good in itself I've just ordered a book called who cooked Adam Smith's dinner and I'm really looking forward to reading that because that tries to look at the way that economics plays a part in the the, the roles in society that we give more value to the reason it's called Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner is when he was writing his books about economics and acting in his own self self and interest economically, who was there to support him? And he didn't end up putting any of that economic value of who who was supporting him into his economics works. So it's trying to look at the world in a in a bit of a different way and try. Um, Moving, trying to move away from this idea of moral goods and into economic goods. I want to bring Leanne in at, at this point. Leanne, what's your perspective on this sort of question of, you know, why nursing is so often seen as as women's work? So to just to kind of answer your original question about whether or not women are seen as women's work because there are more women in the profession, I'd say that's only kind of partly, and it's quite a circular issue in that respect, which makes, you know, adding more men into the equation uh, feel like the obvious solution. But it's not that simple. And there's an argument, I would say, for more visibility of men in nursing, which can serve to normalise men's place within the profession. However, I don't think it's the whole story. And that's where I think we need to be careful with these discussions. If we overlook the kind of universal undervaluing of women and the work that women do, 
then even if we were to see more men in the um, profession, there's a really strong risk that it would be at the expense of women by ignoring the kind of clear misogyny uh, and structural discrimination that leads to the undervaluing of women in their work, whatever that work may be. Kendall, you've worked in very different environments, so transferring from from the sappers to study nursing and working at present in the NHS, although I know you hope to transfer back to a military medical unit. What's been your experience of how the job's been seen in, in terms of gender? What was people's reactions when you said that you were moving to, to study nursing? So the sappers are incredibly male-dominated. They're about 10% female, if that. And people were really questioned my motives for want, for transferring to the to the nursing corps. They they questioned why I'd want to transfer to a profession that was notoriously underpaid and underappreciated. And it's kind of sad. I used to get quite a lot of impressed looks when I told people I was a sapper, but now when I tell people I'm an army nurse, I definitely get less impressed looks, which is just really sad, particularly when I when you consider how my chat about how hardworking nurses are and how that should be really impressive actually. With how gender is is seen in the job. So I think this is down to because it is traditionally seen as as women's work, I, I can only assume. And I think that's re- reflected in in many ways from what I can see on on kind of the shop floor and my first registered nurse job. It's it's reflected in the poor progression of pay, particularly when you consider the progression of responsibility responsibility and risk um, but also in little everyday things like our appalling rest facilities and inadequate changing facilities that you have at work and I just think how things like that really tell me how how I'm regarded and how my job is seen and what regard people see my job in um, and I, I think it's also reflected in how society just doesn't seem to understand what nurses do and the complexities of nursing and the level of knowledge and skill that we have and how we impact every corner of society really because we are really di- dispersed throughout society. So to come back to to Rachel and thinking about some of the economic complexities Rachel that you talked about in your report how did that report um, inform the RCN's recent submission to the pay review body? It's been more about underlying the economic impact, both of what we've learned from austerity. Austerity hasn't worked for anybody apart from the, the top 1% of the UK economy, or global economy. It's kept wages down for everybody. It damaged economic growth. It's damaged productivity. It's left public services in a sorry state. And we've been found lacking under the glare of the the pandemic. Austerity hits working women as well. It hits working women and it holds back child development. As working women are held back economically, it holds back their their families. So it's, it's making that broader argument that you're not just, pay just isn't about the annual pay uplift. It's about investment in a necessary public service it's it's necessary to support recruitment and retention but there's this broader economic case to invest in a, a dominant female workforce for for the good of the whole economy one solution to nursing being seen as women's work is to recruit more men into the profession but is a focus on doing so giving a message that for nursing to be recognized as the knowledge-intensive, safety-critical profession it is, it has to be able to attract more men in order to demonstrate our value and 
the recognition that would come with that. Leanne, you've been doing a lot of work on the um, men in nursing recruitment campaigns, and you've recently written that we must stop bending over backwards to make nursing attractive to men. So what do you think is wrong with some of those current recruitment campaigns? Um, I think there are probably quite a number of things wrong with uh, men in recruitment campaigns. But I suppose the main thing and the, the thing for me is that they're essentially founded on this kind of false equivalence that positions men's low numbers in the profession as, which tends to be consistently around the 10% mark, it, it positions it as this kind of issue of gender inequality rather than choice. Because over and over again, what we see in the research is that men don't choose nursing as they think it's too feminine. And they essentially don't want to be seen as feminine. So it is this kind of issue of choice. Yet what we now have are kind of universities uh, setting targets within their kind of gender equality commitment strategies to increase the number of men in nursing degree programs. We have the Scottish Funding Council who have set targets in their gender action plan. And even Athena Swan, which is uh, people who don't know the scientific women's academic network, whose entire premise is addressing gender inequality you know, they too have set kind of targets to increase the number of men. So again, it's this kind of false equivalence between men's choices and this legitimate structural oppression faced by women and other marginalised groups. And I think legitimising men's kind of reluctance to do a job that's seen as feminine is effectively, in my view, legitimising misogyny. And we see this reflected in the campaigns where they frequently use the language of oppression and inequality and their calls for action and they get a lot of attention and funding and platforms as a result of this and I've mentioned before as well that there's some kind of uh, research in sociology that has argued that it's partly because of this misuse of language that's essentially giving what's already an advantaged group of men in nursing an even greater advantage since we know that you know they progress faster and further and with fewer qualifications than women so this is just kind of one of the things that I think is is wrong with these campaigns. Kendall, you've worked in quite a male-dominated area outside of nursing. So sort of thinking about some of the points that, that Leanne's made, what were expectations of, of men and women in, in that environment? And are the difference in the way that male and female recruits were trained in the army, where there may be, may be some parallels with um, you know, some of the experience of men training in, in nursing? Yeah, there really are. So um, the expect- expectations of men and women are the same. And I would say that gender's never really had a significant impact on my career, either now as a nurse or as a royal engineer. But basic training w- was very different when I joined the army in 2010. So basic training at Santa's Males and females did the same training, but we did it separately. So I was in an all-female platoon, which is a group of 30 soldiers, and we trained alongside um, groups of all-male platoons. Although this wasn't particularly useful in preparing me to command my predominantly male platoon upon commissioning, and now the um, training is very much mixed, which is definitely a positive move. I did understand that the separate training that I underwent was part of quite a long evolution of bringing women into the military. That's ultimately led to quite a strong cohort of female officers, even though it's quite a small, strong cohort is still strong. So I guess I I don't immediately resonate with the arguments against the men into nursing campaigns, but I know that the situation is, is, isn't completely comparable. They're not exactly the same situations. Yeah, so it's an interesting comparison, I think. 
And Rachel, despite um, some of these recruitment campaigns, the proportion of men in nursing has actually remained pretty static at around 10% for the last 10 years or so. And why do you think that's that's the case? Why do you think, given some of the um, discussion we've had around campaigns specifically to, to bring men in, but yet, you know, why do you think it's still a profession that some men are reluctant to, to join? I think there are moves to pitch nursing as a, a STEM subject, as if that's going to magically kind of break down the barriers and attract men into the role. I think it's important to use all avenues to recruit more people and to portray nursing realistically about about what it offers to people. You can't get away from the fact that it needs to be attractive by being a well-rewarded profession for everybody, for men and for women. For me, that needs to be the, the imperative. We need to... Um, look at ways to make it more attractive for everybody, not just men or women. And at the moment, I don't think it is seen as um, a, an economically rewarding career for, for many people. There is the glass escalator effect in nursing where men rise to the top quicker than women mm. to senior roles. If we were to recruit more men into nursing and not do anything about that structural foible within nursing, then we're just replicating that problem. We need to look at structural issues that mean that men and women of ethnic minority backgrounds don't progress as quickly as white men say. We need to get those two aspects right first, the the absolute pay levels and access to progression for for all nurses and address those barriers that are facing particularly women and particularly women of ethnic minority backgrounds as a stronger imperative. Leanne, did you want to come in on that? What I kind of wanted to talk about was that there was this article um, that I was reading recently uh, in the New York Times. It was about a few years ago, maybe 2016. And it was about a Cornell University study that found that when women enter fields in greater numbers, um, what they find is that pay declines. And, and that's often for the very same jobs that men were doing before. And I think it was a professor at New York University also looked at the US census data for about a 50 year period um, between 1950 and I think uh, 2000 and found this pattern was replicated over and over and over again that when more men enter a profession, um, the kind of pay goes up. Uh, the work conditions, working conditions improve and women tend to get pushed out. And when women enter a profession, the kind of reverse tends to happen. And it isn't even really about the kind of jobs that women do. So biologists, for example, saw a pay decline in this period of 18%. And the reverse, again, is true. So computer programming was once this kind of predominantly female role that was really interestingly seen as this kind of menial job that women were doing. But since more men have entered that profession, pay has increased dramatically. It's attracted a lot more prestige um, and women have been pushed out. So when we're talking about STEM, um, now we have these uh, kind of efforts to get women into STEM rather than actually back to STEM in some respects. So there's a lot going on here, uh, I think, uh, more than kind of notions of images of the profession even. It's actually what the data tells us is that it, it doesn't matter what women are doing. 
the kind of common theme here is that it's women that are undervalued, whatever work it is that they do. So if you're looking for where much of the impact of the COVID pandemic has fallen, it's on women, as they make up the largest proportion of those working in health and care services, and also because of caring responsibilities in the home, still very often the domain of women. Rachel, a recent report by the Women and Equalities Select Committee finds that government policies during the pandemic have repeatedly skewed towards men. How do you think women have generally been disproportionately affected by COVID-19? Yeah, I think there has been a, a differential impact on, on women, particularly working women. You know, I'm not saying that men are at the frontier of personal and working lives, but I think it does impact working women more. They're bringing the, the stress levels about their own health and the, the, the wider uh, and the wider family. And I do kind of worry about the pressure on working women and taking on Care responsibilities, you know, both ends, children and um, elderly parents and, and other relatives. And the prospects for career progression and, and job satisfaction in the future, I think it does get loaded onto women. Nursing in particular and other caring professions, I think, have really stepped up during the pandemic, working in new areas, new working in new ways, learning new skills and particularly working long hours. I think that speaks to nursing in particular and women, you know, not wanting to let the team down, not wanting to let the patient down in particular. And when we get back to normal, I hope that 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 sort of inherent pragmatism, that stoicism isn't taken for granted, that we we do have a, a reset, not necessarily back to as things were, but that we don't keep loading on to people expecting them to take on new roles, responsibilities without remuneration and they don't end up working stupid hours. You know, people will start to work with the feet and leave health and social care. And I think we've seen quite a lot of nursing staff who've sort of held off on retirement or uh, have come back and don't want to stay, don't want to stay anymore because it has been so stressful so yeah two ways that women have been impacted that the the unpaid work that women do and the, the paid work that they do. Leanne you would bring to this question of how women have been affected by the pandemic quite a different perspective I guess from your work and and your role what what would you say have been really um, the ways in which women have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic? I think probably the best way to summarise how women have been affected, uh, because the impact has been so extensive, would just be to say that it's exacerbated existing issues and inequalities. So in my role, what we've noticed is that lockdown tends to coincide with reduced referrals for domestic abuse, rape and sexual assault, which doesn't mean that it's not happening. In fact, we know that things are worse than ever, but women are kind of more restricted than ever and they're struggling to access help. So it's fallen to women who tend to be uh, leading support services to push for funding uh, and to be thinking quickly and creatively about to navigate this new terrain and, and how to help women. And we see this in all different areas where women are affected. It's, again, women leading the response, which is, you know, very much just business as usual, since this has always been the case. 
but they're currently doing it with less funding um, as local councils have been cutting funding to these vital services, even amidst the escalating risk and the work that's been required to mitigate it. A couple of last week, protesters took to Parliament Square in memory of our uh, nurse, Mary Agiapong, and talking about the risks to, to pregnant women and unborn children in working through the, the pandemic. And Leanne, I wonder if you think if the NHS and the government have supported pregnant working women during the pandemic in the way that that should have happened. I think the support for pregnant working women has been completely inadequate, uh, to be honest. Um, I've personally known several women who've been working um, as nurses and caring for people who are sick with COVID, you know, right on the front lines um, throughout their pregnancy. And then they've returned to work very quickly afterwards. And they've often done this with inadequate uh, PPE. And this we know intersects again, particularly strongly with race, as with the case of Mary, where nurses have reported feeling pressured to work um, due to kind of understaffing and the demand on the services. But that's ultimately been putting them at risk. And I think everybody who's been working in patient-facing roles throughout the pandemic has felt, to some degree, the risk to their lives and the lives of their families. But for pregnant women, where the risks have been higher, the support to stay home and stay safe has just not been adequate. And Kendall, I know that we've seen there's a recent study which has shown that um, during the pandemic, mothers are, are more likely to lose their jobs, twice as likely to undertake un paid leave and following on from thinking about you know how pregnant women have been affected through the pandemic then how have nurses who've been mothers been affected during the pandemic yeah hugely their well-being their families and their careers have, have likely been affected um that's uh, slightly different to the study you're talking about because most nurses are, are probably still going out to work and not working from home or furloughed. Because we know that mothers are more likely to bear the burden of childcare responsibilities, and so they're more likely to need to take a leave of absence from work on these grounds. So nurses who are mothers are more likely to have had to take these absences to stay at home with their children who might be shielding or isolating or otherwise at home due to the pandemic. And single mothers are likely to have taken on the sole responsibility for this. So this could affect their immediate well-being, but also could affect their long-term career prospects. We've also heard a lot of stories of women have to, having to live separately from their children in order to shield them from the virus while they've been going out to, to, to work as a nurse, which are incredible stories. This is actually replicated in our student nurse population. Some have lived away from their children in order to complete their degrees and join the register, which we've needed them to. And for many, this adds to the already intense emotional burden of um, working through the the pandemic. So you've got both living away from your children and or the fear of bringing the virus into your home. It has a huge impact on mothers who are nurses. But the emotional burden of the pandemic is probably something we could um, do a whole podcast on. And we've also heard of students who have been unable to continue their studies due to the burden of childcare responsibilities or the fear of taking the the virus home to their families. They've therefore delayed joining the register or they've been unable to join the register at all. And and these, as we know, are people that we really need to join the register because we are in somewhat of a workforce crisis. We also know that many parents in general have been 
juggling um, multiple roles. So, and in this case, we've got um, women who are mothers, nurses, teachers, carers, homemakers, wives, etc. And although this is often the case with um, women, this this is alongside the work of, of a greater pressures at work, more hours, and the general exhaustion. So it's all exacerbating the emotional and physical burden of the pandemic. Um, so quite a lot. The pandemic has has, um, <laughs> has um, affected mothers pretty significantly. And I should say, there are, of course, fathers who are in very similar boats. But as we know, this often does happen to mothers. And I think, Kendall, one of the things you reflect there is that, you know, impact on those student nurses who are students, nurses, mothers, and um, impacted by, you know, really a huge number of, of pressures at a time when absolutely we need them to join our workforce. You also mentioned, you know, the the impact and, and, and stress. And in March, just earlier this year, the government announced, you know, a significant amount of NHS funding, partly to actually continue to provide sort of mental health and occupational support for nurses and frontline staff. And Leanne, sort of, I wonder if you think enough is being done in that space. Well, I'd probably always say that uh, prevention's better than cure, but I think it's about 10 million in funding that uh, NHS staff have been allocated. It's apparently for employers to recruit well-being guardians. I'm not sure what they are. Um, and also to have health and well-being conversations at work. So as far as curative approaches go, it's looking to be quite weak. PTSD, which is something that nurses are reporting amidst the kind of ongoing COVID crisis, particularly those who've been working in um, ICU and ITU. PTSD, it's really not the remit of a health and well-being uh, guardian or a health and well-being conversation with your line manager. What we need is greater investment in early intervention uh, and support for people. But these kind of services have been defunded over the years. And so we were just kind of left with mental health services that are only able to take the most complex and high risk of cases. And, and everyone else is basically being managed by overwhelmed GPs or sitting on long waiting lists for things like CBT or um, they're being forced to pay privately for counselling, which many just can't afford. So no, it's not been enough and it's very unlikely to to be enough unless there's some funding for early intervention services and some kind of co-production um, of services with staff so that we actually get an idea of what it is that staff want and need. Finally, one upside of the pandemic could be that female leaders have come more to the fore in some of our hospitals and healthcare institutions. But I don't know that we've seen enough of female leadership in the in the management and in the politics of health. For a short while back in the summer, Ruth May, the Chief Nursing Officer for England, appeared on the Downing Street podium, but then seemed to disappear. Kendall, a report from the NHS Confederation Health and Care Women Leaders Network last year found that nursing is actually the most common route for women to reach a, a CEO position in the NHS. Is that a surprise? And does it challenge our previous discussion about nursing women and, and prospects for career progression? Yeah, it was a surprise when I read that. Yeah, particularly when you consider all of our discussion prior to this moment on um, career progression and how male nurses often progress quicker than their female counterparts and such. Um, 
However, I guess it's it's important to consider that we are the largest safety critical workforce. And so I wonder if the percentage of the female nurse nurse workforce reaching the CEO, CEO positions is significantly more than our colleagues in other healthcare professions. Um, I don't know the answer to that, but I suspect not. So the, the report was encouraging, but uh, it shows healthcare still has a way to go to, to reach the 50-50 gender representation target in leadership roles. I think it showed that out of 213 chief execs in the NHS, only 97 were women. So we've still got a little way to go. Absolutely. I think we've still got a long way to go because we know, as you say, Kendall, although women make up about 75% actually of all NHS staff. They're only in a third of, of senior positions. And we talked earlier about the, the glass elevator for men, that we know that in nursing, despite being in a minority, men are overrepresented in more senior roles. Leanne, do you have ideas about how we can tackle this um, vertical gender segregation where men do tend to rise to the top more quickly than women? I think what we need to do is start by making it a priority and committing to action, which is part of the reason why um, some of us formed the Feminist Network. I was listening to a really interesting talk from a professor of social and organisational psychology recently, and she was speaking about her research on how context constrains women's career choices. So whilst we often talk about women choosing to take career breaks to have children and women choosing to work part-time to juggle caring responsibilities, we're essentially paying a lot less attention to women's ambitions and career goals And this research basically outlined that women in most professions tend to start out just as ambitious as men, often a little bit more ambitious, um, but that this begins to decline after a while to considerably lower levels than their male counterparts. And uh, part of what they found was that people with um, the sustained ambition that's required for career progression tended to be treated in in a certain and specific kind of way by their peers. And they found that these people were often regarded really highly uh, by their peers. They were sought out for their advice and their input, and they were just clearly very respected by their peers. And this applied across a variety of different professions. So if we then kind of extrapolate that to nursing and the advantage that men have in their career trajectories, what we're potentially seeing is the result of men being treated more favourably by their peers, more respected and more likely to be sought out for their views and opinions. And we see this, for example, or I see this certainly on Twitter, you know, if a man speaks about feminism uh, in nursing on Twitter, the applause is quite uproarious compared with women speaking about the same issue where it, it just doesn't have the same impact. So I think we have a problem in nursing with how we treat men and women differently and how that shapes women and how they see themselves and is likely, to some degree, hampering their ambition. We're almost at the end of the podcast and that means that we have a question from one of our listeners. Remember that those listening can ask us anything just tweet your question to at the RCN with the hashtag nursing matters and we'll pick one to ask. So this time, Jim from London asks, what do next month's local elections mean for nursing? Should we even bother voting? And of course, in Scotland, there are parliamentary elections coming up as well. So Leanne, what do the elections hold for nursing in Scotland and and should people vote? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it's always worth 
voting. I know that, you know, people can be quite disheartened and sometimes feel that there's not really much in it other than voting for, you know, a different colour of tie. But it's always worth kind of using that power that you have. And certainly women never taking for granted that we can vote and that we can use our voices to have some kind of say and influence. And and if we really want to influence, then we need to be getting more organised. And I think that's particularly the case here in Scotland. So it's not only worthwhile voting, it's worthwhile kind of using your power, coming together to put a bit of political pressure on parties who are at this really kind of crucial juncture where they're looking for support, where they're wanting to kind of hear from people. And and I think now is a really good time to kind of use your voice, use your power to come together, start asking questions about, you know, I know in Scotland at the moment that we're consulting on the kind of pay offer that we've been given, which is 4%, which is quite a bit more than the 1% in England. But, you know, we're still kind of being advised to reject that because, of course, um, it's still far less than we deserve, obviously. And, and it still doesn't make up for the kind of real terms cut that we've had over the years under austerity. So now's a really good time to be asking questions of other political candidates about whether or not they would do a, a better offer. I'm um, looking to our current kind of leadership and asking about whether that's their final offer. Now's a really good time to start putting the pressure on. So don't just vote, get together behind your union, organise and put some pressure on at this really crucial point and uh, get the kind of message out there about the value of nursing and and uh, get some answers on what's going to be happening and some commitment to action. Thanks, Leanne, and, and absolutely agree. It's so critical to get involved in that whole process and use the opportunities to to raise the, the profile of nursing within that and, and make our political asks. There's never a better time than when a politician's looking for your vote, really. So thank you. That is the end of the podcast. So I want to say thank you to our special guests, um, Leanne Patrick. Thank you, Leanne. Thank you for having me. It's been great to be here. And thank you, Rachel. Confusing having two Rachels. So thank you, Rachel McElroy. Thank you, Rachel Hollis. And finally, to um, my co-host, Kendall Moran. And I think at the beginning, I forgot to say that Kendall represents students on the nursing committee, but certainly, Kendall, you spoke well for students during our podcast. So, so thank you. Thank you. We'll be back in two weeks' time. So remember to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got time, give us a nice positive review on Apple Podcasts, which is the best way to spread the word about nursing matters. Remember to ask us questions or suggest topics for future episodes. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and we'll see you next time. <laughs>